Good morning. I always feel like I need to say Vietnam after that. Some of you will get that movie reference. Some of you don't. And those who don't, you're probably better off. So this morning we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7 as we get closer to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start with verse 7 and go through verse 14 where Jesus talks about asking and it will be given and then the golden rule. However, before I can start verse 7, I have to back up and do verse 6 because I realized afterwards last week that I never got to verse 6. I don't want to leave you hanging. Also, it's not an easy verse. To, it's a little bit of one of those challenging, difficult verses to navigate. And it's easy just to say, oh, I'll skip that one. But part of the message here in the golden rule is not doing what's easy, but doing what's hard. So then that means I have to do the hard thing and go back and do verse 6. So let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you so, so much for your kindness and your goodness and the way that you love us even when we're hard to love. Thank you, Father, that you care for us. You show your loving kindness to us and continue to love us until our dying days. And we praise you for being the God you are and carrying us and walking us through this life so that we will know you and enjoy you even more in the next. In Jesus' name, amen. So start there, verse 6 of chapter 7. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Okay, well... This is just kind of strange, especially when Jesus has just talked about not being judgmental and, you know, not trying to remove the the speck out of your brother's eye because you've got this big thing in your eye. And then he turns around and says, do not give dogs what is holy. Okay, that's kind of a weird transition. And what is that all about? Well, the first thing to understand is when Jesus refers to these dogs and these pigs here in this verse, these are not like our pet dogs. Okay. And these are not like the fun little piglets that you pick up at the fair. These ain't the same. All right. These dogs are your wild feral dogs. Think of the, think of the Australian dingoes or the hyenas in Africa. That's the kind of dogs he's referring to here. These kind of wild animals that roam in packs and tend to be very destructive. And the pigs, These are your wild, feral pigs, the ones that just love to tear everything up and have the tusks sticking out from the side and and will do a lot of damage to your body if if you let them get close to you. These are the kind of creatures that Jesus is describing here. And what he's saying, look, the short version of this is just don't give the best of your life to the people who just want to use and abuse you. Now, that seems confusing because he's saying, Look, you know, you need to love everybody and you need to be like me and, you know, and do what I'm telling you to do and the Beatitudes. But we also see from Jesus's own life that he recognized those individuals who were so given themselves over to evil that they were only interested in chewing him up and spitting him out. And when he interacted with those people, he was not a very nice Jesus. 
He was a pretty tough, not taking any gruff Jesus, right? And so what he's saying to us here is this simple idea. Those who are truly your enemies, not those who are just unbelievers, but those who just want to chew you up and spit you out because they've given themselves over to evil, treat them like you would these wild dogs or these wild pigs. Avoid them if you can and deal with them in a harsh way if you can't avoid them. All right, so now let's get on to the fun stuff. Verse 7. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, I sort of did a bad preacher thing. It's only been about four months since I preached on this passage. (laughs) If you go back to the website, you can see there on February the 14th when I went through asking it will be given and you will receive. So the things that most people think about with this passage, what does it mean? What are we supposed to ask for? How are we supposed to ask? A lot of that stuff is in that sermon. And you can listen to that on February the 14th of this year. So what am I going to do with this? Right? Not preach the same. I even tried. I tried to find that thing, my notes from that, and just was going to preach the same thing again. But no, no, God wouldn't let me do that. Can't do the easy thing. I got to do the hard thing. And the reason he wanted me to do the hard thing is because this is going to take a different angle. And I'm, I'm looking at this today, not just for about asking and being given, but about who we are asking and why we can ask him. See, this, we can ask our father for the things that we desire because he desires to give good gifts to us. He desires to give us good things. And that flies right in the face of everything our culture around us is telling us about who God is. If you, our culture has changed so much in the last 50 years to where it doesn't look at all like it did 50 years ago. You didn't have to prove that God was good 50 years ago. Not for the majority of the culture. Today, it's accepted that he's not good for the most part in the largest portion of our culture. And that's what we've lost in our culture today is this goodness of God. And in place of the good God of Scripture, we've been given essentially the false gods of the Romans, the Greeks, and the ancient Mesopotamians. These things that call themselves divine beings who are fickle, who are self-centered and arrogant and are indifferent to human suffering. That's become the accepted view of God. And one of my great examples of this is on Friday, Amy and I went to see the movie Thor, Love and Thunder. And that's the image of God they present. Zeus shows up in the movie. And he's only interested in having a good time. Good food, good wine, good sex. 
That's all Zeus cares about. Thor even says we've got this problem in the universe. We need to stop this bad guy. Oh, no, we don't worry about them guys. All he cares about is having a good time, completely indifferent to human suffering. The movie even opens up with this message of the villain in the movie who's played by Christian Bale is trying to find his God because things have gone so bad in his world. And when he finally gets there, his daughter dies in his arms in the desert. And he finally gets to where this God is. He goes and bows before him and does all the things he's been taught to do in his religious order and teachings about how to interact with God. And God laughs at him. He's completely indifferent to the fact that all the people who worship him are dead. He just doesn't care. And he doesn't even care that Christian Bale's character has done this tremendous effort to find him. I don't care. You're eating my fruit. That was literally the words from this guy's mouth. This is the image of God that's left with us today. This, this thing. And of course, you know, Thor being the, uh, the hero of the movie, They've done the other thing with God besides there's two things you do with God. You either make him into this cruel and different thing or you make him just like us. They did. They made Thor so much like us. He's just an, a pathetic millennial. Really? I mean, you think about the millennial generation and the most pathetic aspects and character traits of the millennial generation. And that's what Thor was in the movie. They've done a phenomenal job and the culture's done a phenomenal job of making God into our image. I've said this before, you might have heard me say it, that in the Garden of Eden, God created man and ever since then we've been trying to return the favor. This culture has accomplished their mission of making him just like them. Making him into the worst aspects of our human nature. But our God is not like that. God the Father is not like that. Scripture does not present anywhere of God who is indifferent to human suffering. It presents a God who's the exact opposite. It presents a God who loves his people so much that he shed his own divine blood to save us, to redeem us, to give us hope. And to give us a place where we can have fellowship with him and know him as the loving father that he is. And if you didn't grow up with a loving father, that's a very hard image to comprehend. And I understand that. I had a good father. But I understand how difficult it is for those who didn't have a good human father to ever see God as a good father. You have no reference point for it. And that's why scripture becomes so critically important. You must, if, if that was your experience, my brother and sisters, my friends, I plead with you. Let go of the false image of our father that you have believed in because you had a poor human father. And instead, mind the richest glories of our heavenly father who loves us so much 
that he shed his own blood to redeem us and bring us to him and make it possible to enjoy him. You know, Luke records this very passage in Luke chapter 11. And he adds something else that Matthew leaves out that I think is worth taking the time to look at. Lord's Prayer. Oh, now I can't find it. Oh, well, I read it. I know, trust me, I've read it. (laughs) I should have written that down on my notes here, shouldn't I? Oh, well. Also, don't judge your impressions of preachers from me either. I'm not a good model of that either. But when Luke records this passage, he talks about, if you then who are evil will give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who is in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What greater gift could our Father give us than the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit with us, in us, making it possible to have the intimate fellowship with our Father that He does by giving us the Holy Spirit? And Luke records it very simply and matter-of-factly as ask for the Spirit and the Lord will give you the Spirit. So I ask you a question, just a simple one. Have you asked our Father for the gift of the Spirit? Now, when I say gift of the Spirit, I let me be more precise. In the Pentecostal world, the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit oftentimes is defined as having the sensational gifts of the Spirit, things like speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, or dreams and visions and being able to interpret them, those kind of things. But that's not what I mean by, have you asked our Father for the gift of the Spirit? When I say that, when I use that phrase, I mean it in its fullest sense of an indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within us so that we have intimate fellowship with Him. We hear His voice, we experience His joy and His love for us, and we live as those who know Him not just know about him. That's what I mean. And that's the question I'm asking you this morning. Have you asked him for the kind of presence of the Spirit that makes it possible for you to enjoy intimacy with him and the fullness of his joy and love for you? Oh, this Father, a God who does that, is nothing like the myths of Rome and Greece. He is not like Marduk from the ancient Mesopotamia, and he sure isn't like Zeus from the Greek and the Romans. No, this is a father, this is a God who loves us so much that he cares about what we experience and what we feel every day. Yes, he cares when we are hurting And yes, he does have the sovereign power to take the hurt away or to prevent it from ever happening. But when it does, we know this. He allows it because he loves us and knows that will 
accomplish the greatest good in our heart, mind, and souls. I know. I know what you're thinking. Most of it, look, with the exception of Philip over here, all of us have been around long enough that we've been kicked in the teeth. And how does God letting us get kicked in the teeth become an act of love for us? Well, shall I list the ways for you? (laughs) Thank you, Paige. I appreciate that permission to go forward. First off, I don't know about you, but the times I've been kicked in the teeth, I kind of sort of deserved it. Right? I was, look, when we walk away from our father and decide we're going to do our own thing, sometimes the only way to get our attention to realize that we are screwing up is for something very unpleasant to occur. And that unpleasantness is his way of saving us from something even more unpleasant. Me, several years ago, has it been 10? At least 10, maybe, oh, more than 10. It's been almost 20 years now. I had a cousin who passed away. Mike spent the majority of his adult life in substance abuse, in and out of places to get off of drugs. And then one day, Mike comes down with a very severe infection and sickness, and the body's just not succeeding. And I remember talking with my cousin Lisa, who's the same age as I am. Her brother Mike was much older than we are. And I was talking with Lisa about what was happening with Mike and the medical condition that was occurring. And she said these words to me. Every time I think Mike's situation or condition can't get worse, it does. And and I'm reminded of that, that that even as bad as Mike's condition became before he died, it could have been even worse, which is really, really hard to imagine. And in the same way, when the Father allows difficult things to come into our lives to prevent something from even worse happening to us. And yes, it's true, an eternity separated from him in the, in the horrors of hell is worse than whatever difficult things kicking our teeth in. But not just there, it's also true that if we continue on this path of rebellious disobedience, walking away from him, something far worse than what just kicked our teeth in is going to happen to us in this life. And then there's the times that you're you're obeying God. You're doing everything you're supposed to be doing as far as you understand. You're loving God. You're coming to church. You're worshiping him. You're trying to be obedient to the things he's called you to live out. And bad stuff still happens. I don't have to tell this church that. A year ago, most of you in this room couldn't imagine what was about to happen. This is the last week of of July. You remember things started going bad not long after the first week of August. How do you explain that? How how does a good God let that happen? Because he understands that sometimes 
our greatest love for him grows out of our most difficult and painful experiences. And he starts to show us things like we're too in love with this world. And he reminds us that there's a greater and more glorious place we're going to. And yes, we invest to make a difference in this world, but this is not our home. This is not it. We're not, you know, like we haven't arrived because everything's fantastic here. I know those seem incomplete and probably insufficient answers. And they kind of are. I acknowledge that. But from my own experiences in walking a difficult road, the reality is, is my love for him and how dependent I am on him is so much greater today than it was before those difficult experiences. Some of you know a little bit about uh, the struggle I've had with physical pain and body stuff. I thought I was a humble guy. I really thought I was humble. But spending six months on your back staring at the ceiling will show you how unhumble you are. Well, that's, not a, that's not a good way to say that. How humble you are not. But how prideful and arrogant you are and how much you care about what other people think and all this other stuff that you don't even know is there because life is good. I remember Bill Clinton's phrase, the money's good, economy's good, life is good. Money was okay, life was good. No. Yeah, life was good, but Brian wasn't good. Brian was still thinking he was the man. He was thinking I'm responsible for all this goodness in my life. Which therefore shows that I wasn't really listening to him very well. Therefore, something bad had to come along and show me that I'm really not responsible for the good things in my life. I just get to enjoy them. Yes, if I could go back and change May 22nd, 2017, I absolutely would. I absolutely would. Because it was so unpleasant. But yet, here... July 24th, 2022, I have to acknowledge I wouldn't be the man I am today. I wouldn't be who I am. You probably wouldn't like me very much as a pastor if it hadn't been for the stuff I went through. Now, I don't know. You have to ask some people who knew me in May 21st, 2017. But I'm grateful for what God has done to change me even though it was very unpleasant, very hard, very painful. And I'm thankful that he loved me enough not to leave me where I was on May 21st, 2017, but to cause the things and the events to occur that, that led me to this place of realizing who I really was and who I really wasn't. And what he really understood and believed about me and versus what I believed he believed about me. I know that's, that sounds, I know that sounds an awkward way to say this, but you know, we have these lies we believe about God and ourselves. And until those lies get stripped away in the truth of who he says we are and believe that comes into place, 
We're just not who we're supposed to be. As long as we believe the lie about who we are and who he is, we're not the person he created us to be. And that's why asking and Jesus saying right here, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you is so critical. Because as Luke said, he will give us his Holy Spirit. He will give us himself so that we can be who he created us to be. And we can get rid of the lies that we believe about ourselves and about who he is. And all of that leads right into the next passage about doing what is right, even though it's hard. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Why is it so hard to do that? Why is it so hard to treat people the way you want to be treated, the way I want to be treated? Why is that so hard? It shouldn't be that hard, but it is. And we could go ahead and list all the reasons, the ones psychologically, the emotional ones, to make this big list. But the bottom line is, is that at some level, you know, we start peeling back the pretty layers of our heart and get down a little deeper. We want to be God. I don't want people to treat me the way I want. I'm about to say that wrong. (laughs) I don't treat people the way I want to be treated because I want to be God. I want to be worshipped. I want to be the commander and ruler of my universe. And I want you to obey my commands. I really don't care about your universe. I just care that you do what I want you to do so that I'm happy. That's the dirty secret of our hearts. That's why it's so hard to treat people the way we want to be treated. And then he says this really strange thing about enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. What? the heck is he talking about? Do you ever feel that way when you read these verses? I mean, I remember the, not just the first time I read them, but like the 15th time I read it, like, what is he talking about? I mean, I understand you got wide gates are easy to walk through and narrow gates. I mean, I grew up on a farm. I understand narrow gates are harder to walk through and less people can get through them at once. And I understand the practical realities of gates. But what's this got to do with heaven and treating people the way you want to be treated and asking him for the things that I want. What's I don't get the gate thing. I don't understand. Part of it is we live in a different culture and we think of gates differently than they did in that day. And I could go into this long explanation of the historic meaning of gates in ancient Mesopotamia as well as in Palestine in the day of Jesus. But that doesn't really help us very much actually get to the heart of the matter. It helps us expand our knowledge, but it doesn't help us get to this reality that what Jesus is trying to say is that it's the easy way of living is usually the destructive way. And the hard way of living 
is the way of life. I'm reminded of the outlaw Josie Wells. Clint Eastwood, okay, free, free bonus material here. Clint Eastwood movies have great theology built into them. You don't even know it, but it's there. The outlaw Josie Wells. Dying's easy. Living is hard. Well, he got that mostly right. Dying is easy, but living well is hard. And dying well, that's the hardest of all. Because the closer you get to death, the more difficult it is to do what's right in the eyes of God. Partly out of fear, partly because of the degradation of the heart, mind, and soul in the process of death. But nonetheless, what's easy for us is often destructive because the easy way for us to live is born out of and fueled by the evil desires in our hearts. And the difficult way that leads to life is because it's fighting against the natural tendencies of our heart and soul, both our fallen nature and our selfishness. And without the presence of the Spirit that we ask for first, taking the hard way is really, really hard. And even after the Spirit is present, it's fighting against our selfish desires and it's still hard to do the right thing, but it's less hard to live the right way. I mean, even today, treating people the way I want to be treated is hard. It's just less hard. Because I guess I'm a little less, a little, right? Okay, let me define little less selfish than I used to be. But that's not because I went on a self-improvement program and I made myself better. That's not what happened. Yeah, you see, my wife is almost busting me. My wife is about to fall over laughing. <laughs> the only time I'm going to lie to you about who I am is when she's not here. Like, she takes a Sunday off or goes to see the grandkids... I could get away with a little something. <laughs> but then again, by now, most of you know me well enough that you can tell I'm lying. Oh, well, that was a side distraction. I lost my place. Where was I? Oh, a little less selfish than I used to be, but not because I went on a self-improvement program, but because I submitted to the work of the Spirit to change me from the inside out. And that, my brothers and sisters, is my plea to you this morning. Ask for the Spirit so that He will indwell in you and start to transform you from the inside out and continue from the moment He begins to indwell in you until the day of our last breath, transforming us into the image of Christ so that we will be able to enjoy the glories of heaven even more than we could have. Let's pray. Oh, thank you. Thank you so, so much, Father, that you are not like the false gods around us. That you're not like the God 
we sometimes try to make you into and certainly not like the God that the culture tries to make you into. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us your spirit. And my my plea to you, my Father, is that you will give us more of your spirit and give us more of your likeness transforming us from the inside out so that we will enjoy you even more than we do now. In Jesus' name, amen.